0: for that beautiful song, such a great way to honor our graduates and encourage them. Seems like it wasn't that long ago that I was graduating. Oh, and then I got to celebrate just this last week, so goodness, fresh on my mind. Exciting. Bill Gates is well known as the co-founder of Microsoft. He was an important part of that revolution that really changed the way we live our lives, starting in the late 1970s and especially revving up through the 1980s, this sort of computer revolution That again, in so many ways, changed the way that we live. It was announced this week that he and his wife, Melinda, are getting a divorce after 27 years of marriage. The news sent shockwaves, but probably not so much just because they're divorcing, but rather because they'd been together for 27 years, which is exceptional when you look at the sort of celebrity status that they carry. Beyond the background is sort of computer technology. Again, that's one reason that he's famous. But both of them, both Bill and Melinda, were very famous as philanthropists all over the world and certainly here in the United States as well. Very well-known celebrities in their own right. Celebrities are admired for, for many things in our culture, but, uh, but not usually for the health of their marriages. It's rare... Uh, and in the rare case that a celebrity marriage makes it to sort of that even 10-year mark, it becomes quite exceptional. And usually by that really is put all the more sort of uh, to be, to be ad- admired and, and, and watched very closely. It becomes exceptional in that sense. And I don't say any of this to shame celebrities, certainly not. But to make the point that our culture is deeply confused about marriage. What we see among celebrities and in popular culture, I think we could say more largely, is really just a symptom of a society that is confused and is hurting. The topic of divorce is not an easy topic to address today. But we'll see that it was not an easy topic in Jesus' day either. That becomes very clear as we read this. And yet we find Jesus addressing it with the same sort of directness that we've come to expect from him in the Sermon on the Mount. And when we remember what the Sermon on the Mount is really about, we're not surprised to see Jesus addressing marriage and divorce as he does here. As a discourse about how we should live our lives as citizens of the kingdom of God, what kind of people we should be in light of the gospel, in light of the coming kingdom. Well, questions related to marriage and divorce have major implications for how we live our lives. And so we should listen carefully to what scripture has to teach us on this topic. I've titled this message, What About Divorce? In our text, Jesus elevates marriage by stressing the seriousness of divorce. Let's read the text together, just two verses. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We're going to see Jesus, really we're going to have to look at his teaching here in two parts. He's going to say both of these together as he exhorts us to honor marriage as the God-given institution that it is. And so we begin with number one, a declaration. A declaration. And so we'll really begin just by noting the fact that this is not the only place that Jesus teaches about divorce. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, it makes sense that his teaching on divorce would follow what he says. If you just glance up, verses 27 through 30 are about lust and adultery. And so it makes sense that that a divorce would follow quite naturally. And so I I noted that this is not an easy topic to address, to discuss. When we consider that, that half of all marriages in the U.S. end in divorce, I mean, we're not surprised that churches might be inclined to sort of skirt the issue a little bit. It's a raw issue for many people, understandably. So many of us have been affected by divorce. I mean, there's, there's the, the direct impact of those who might be divorced, but the way it affects children and affects others in relation to the family and so on, it, it, it is a very personal issue. And so as I speak this, it, it becomes, even these words, it becomes a, a, a very personal word for us. But all the more in that situation, we need to hear what God has to say on the issue for this reason that we trust that what God has to say on any issue is good and true and for our benefit. Later in Matthew, several chapters later, we find an expanded teaching on these two verses here, and that's in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. In that episode, and we won't go and read it in, 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 you know, in great depth and look through it, but, but it's important to understand because really it is an expansion of what Jesus is saying here in those several verses. In there, the Pharisees have come to Jesus to question him, really to challenge him about the question of divorce. And they bring up this Old Testament text, um, and really the practice that had developed, the tradition that had developed around this text being Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. In Deuteronomy, that's where we get the language here of giving a certificate of divorce, verifying divorce, making it official in that way. The text in Deuteronomy uh, was ultimately a call to require husbands to certify, to make legal their divorce if one was sought for this reason. In other words, uh, a husband couldn't just kick out his wife to the street and say, we are divorced now, go. But, but without a certificate of divorce, ultimately, she would not be able to remarry, which would put her in a very precarious, very vulnerable position in ancient society for a woman, where a woman did not have many rights or protections. What I want to communicate then about this, ultimately thinking about Deuteronomy 24, is that the, the instructions given in the Old Testament here were intended to heighten the seriousness of divorce. In other words, husbands, you can't just send your wife out. If you're going to get a divorce, you better do it right, and you better see that this is a big deal so it would limit divorce then and it would protect hopefully the vulnerable the woman namely but as we've seen before over time it was actually used to do just the opposite these pharisees as they're approaching jesus in matthew 19 and what jesus has in mind as he's speaking in the sermon on the mount is uh, is a very low view of marriage and an idea that marriage or that divorce is a very trivial thing it could be done almost on one's lunch hour they did not have a high view of marriage in that sense. And so that's the world into which Jesus is speaking. And so to answer the Pharisees, it's interesting what Jesus does here. He goes back. He goes back to first principles, foundational principles, early in the Bible. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2, when ultimately God made one man and one woman who would be joined together and become one flesh. I mean, it's, it's hard to get much more foundational than that, and that's what Jesus does And just as a side here, this reminds us how important these foundational principles of the Bible really are. They affect how we live. It's not just theory. They affect even our daily lives, including the most basic questions of our lives here relating to marriage. And so Jesus and Matthew, ultimately this is coming through the pen of Matthew by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it shows us ultimately this is an example of how to construct doctrine. He shows us how to understand the larger story of the Bible and how passages fit together. Jesus does this so often; he does it so masterfully. Too often, we, we think of doctrine as something you know, sort of really heady, abstract. You know, maybe maybe it's something pastors need to study in seminary, and, and but really, we really don't need much more of it beyond that. But doctrine is for real life. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's not giving trivial answers. He's not just giving some sort of cultural expression here, but he's going and he's digging into the word of God to answer these Pharisees. So that's all background. Now let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 31, Jesus references the widely held tradition and practice of the day. He says, it has also been said, and this is the third time we've seen this. If you just glance back at the text, you'll see we saw it in verse 21. Verse 21. Verse 27 and now in verse 31, this refrain as Jesus ultimately gives us these little subsections in the Sermon on the Mount. The religious leaders in Israel taught that a man could divorce his wife for essentially anything, anything that she did to displease him. And so with these other declarations that Jesus has made about lust, about anger, if you just glance up there, all these things, these declarations that he's making, Jesus is cutting through the traditions that have polluted or at the very least, obscured God's intentions for his people. But John Calvin, 500 years ago, he makes a helpful point here by showing that these civil laws, and that's exactly what Deuteronomy 24 was. It was a civil law to the nation of Israel, living as a a theocracy under God, that these laws that were given in the Old Testament were a minimum. But Jesus, first and foremost here in the Sermon on the Mount, is raising the bar for God's holy people in this new age. So important for us to see here exactly what Jesus is doing. Let me tell you what I mean by this. If, you, if you're inclined to think that the grace of Christ, which is so great, if you're inclined to think that that grace means that you can be lax on the commandments of God, that the new age is more lax than what God had done and said before, if that's what you're thinking, then you're not listening to Jesus you're not listening to the Sermon on the Mount. You might be listening to some sort of spirit, but it is not the Holy Spirit because God's word says something entirely different. Jesus calls his people to holiness, even a higher holiness, including on the topic of marriage. As it was, Jewish practice put women in a very vulnerable place and encouraged men, again, to treat their their marriage vows very flippantly. A man could divorce his wife, and when I tell you for almost anything, I mean almost anything. Uh, If she had poor posture, if she had thinning hair, if she had an overbite, if she talked to a man who wasn't her husband and it displeased him. I mean, they have whole lists. It was incredible. And so essentially, for almost anything, a man could divorce his wife. Now, as we see, I mean, this sounds really petty to us, right? And it should. If it doesn't sound petty for you, I'm concerned. Of course, it sounds petty to us. And Jesus is going to say, yes, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. But think about this. I mean, we, we need to look in the mirror. We need to look in the mirror and realize that our culture has had this same standard for decades now in the form of no-fault divorce. You don't have to give a reason these trivial, artificial reasons here. No reason at all is required in our culture for divorce now. You can divorce your spouse without any grounds whatsoever. The only difference in the modern world is both man and woman have that right. And there's reasons for why these laws have have become, and I understand the background on some of these, but the fact is, is our society is not so different from theirs. And so Jesus condemns frivolous divorce, whether it's in this ancient form that again we can go, oh my goodness, how ridiculous, whether it's that form or whether it's in its modern variety. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter, or here in chapter 5, back in verse 20. Glance back up there. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is presenting the higher righteousness of the kingdom of God. And he calls his people to live lives that honor God and that honor fellow man, especially the one that they would vow in this way, as in marriage. And the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus is giving this most thorough teaching about how we should do this. How we can pursue this life of righteousness. In our text, Jesus elevated marriage by contesting divorce. Although he's going to give an exception, and we'll see that in just a moment... Jesus is emphasizing here the permanency of marriage as a God given institution for our good, for the flourishing of humanity. Not something that should be a drag, not something that should be binding in a way that is grudging, but ultimately for our good. Marriage, honestly, is not treasured in our culture. For, for many younger people, especially, I mean, this is true for me, and when I say younger, I, I mean like 60 and yonder. Uh, but it sort of has probably gotten worse with each subsequent generation. Um, marriage is thought of by so many in our culture uh, as sort of just an optional journey that, that some might choose to take. And if so, that's fine. People, people might choose the way of marriage eventually, and then that's fine. You know, we should, we, uh, there's almost more emphasis given to the wedding and the celebration of this and the optics of it than to the marriage covenant itself. But it's fine. Whoever wants to pursue that, it's optional. And then for those that choose marriage, it's held loosely for as long as it basically gives one what they want. And if it fails to live up to my expectations, it can be renegotiated just as anything in life. It's open for renegotiation. The sacredness and the intended permanency of marriage has nearly been lost in our broader culture as Christianity ultimately becomes Uh, only a a figment of our cultural imagination in in the background of our memory, rather. It's a strange thing for us to consider this. But what about within the church? I'm speaking broadly. It's good for us to understand where we are and, and the way that we think within sort of the broader American culture, but what about within the church? As Christians, we of all people should display the goodness of marriage as a testimony to the world around us. That God has declared it to be good and the world should see if anyone has a healthy and godly marriage, it should be us as the church. At the end of the day, the way marriage is treated in our society, it doesn't lead to more happiness. I mean, in the end, it so often leads to brokenness, hurt, deep wounds so many in just in our sinful thoughts and again within the culture that has embraced liberation as sort of this ultimate good. The thought is that if I'm only more free, I will be happier and yet the more freedom that we receive, the more we find that so often leads to emptiness. I want to speak to married people here for just a moment. I want to encourage you to love and honor your spouse as a good gift from God. Book of Proverbs says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It is good. Honor your spouse in that way. Love him, love her. Hold marriage in the highest regard. Let your children see that, let your neighbors see that and your coworkers see that the high regard that it deserves. But also to the unmarried, you can honor marriage too regardless of your season of life or whether you are single, whether you are a widow or a widower, pray for couples in the church. So many of us are married and still, or are in that season of life. Pray for couples in the church. Speaking specifically to those widows and widowers who maybe have decades of wisdom to offer, offer that wisdom to younger couples. Encourage them, strengthen them. You remember what it was like to be in your 20s and feel like you have no idea what you're doing encourage, pray, and minister to those that are younger. That's the Bible's design here. The discipleship would ultimately work that way. You can honor marriage in that way. As a church, we need to be available to minister to people whose marriages are hurting. Just statistically, a church of our size, we can only assume that there will be marriages that are hurting. Don't suffer alone if that's you. Let us as a church minister to you. Don't, don't, don't wait until it's too late to come forward and express that you need help. There's no shame in that. There's blessing in that. Let us as a church walk with you through that. Jesus made this declaration to stress the seriousness of divorce against the common practice of his day. But he does offer an exception that we need to consider here, and it's important. That leads to number two, an exception. An exception. An exception. In verse 32, if you glance there, the exception is stated as except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Uh, the word here translated sexual immorality, it's actually just one word in the original language. It actually has quite a broad meaning. It's used in different ways in the New Testament. It refers to many different kinds of sexual sins. A whole bunch of different things can fall under, the, under this broader category. and That's why it's translated so broadly even in English. But in this context, it's more clear that it amounts to a sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse. So, in other words, that exception is adultery or infidelity. The Apostle Paul seems to give another exception in 1 Corinthians 7, 12-16, but it's a slightly different situation related to abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. We could, we could go into that if we had more time. But even as we consider Jesus' exception here, and with the same exception that he gives in Matthew 19, if you flip over there later, You'll see that. Even as he gives this exception, the main point is actually quite clear. Jesus teaches that divorce should be rare among God's people. Reconciliation is at the heart of the biblical story. Again, remember that importance of looking to the Bible, not in this, such a narrow way that we miss this big picture. And reconciliation is at the heart of it. God's own works and his character call us to see grace, to hold up reconciliation even in our own lives. But our flesh and our society so often encourages us to take the easier path when we've been wronged. And I say that, I don't say that lightly. I recognize, and as a pastor, I've walked with people through recognizing that reconciling a marriage that has been betrayed can be exceedingly painful. But as I said last week, God delights to restore Broken situations, including struggling marriages. He can restore, he can heal, he can heal even the deepest of wounds. This requires love in the form of forgiveness from both parties. It it requires repentance and it requires genuine commitment. The gospel says to us, I mean, we, we just think about it. Again, this great gospel that we have, that we are a people who have been forgiven by the holy God of heaven. If, if any offense is greater, there, there could not be. We have offended the holy God of heaven. And he has forgiven us so freely. How can we harbor unforgiveness? if we continue to get our beliefs about marriage and, and love and, and the way that we think those things are supposed to be connected, if we, if we continue to get that from the society around us, it's no wonder that so many lives in the church are just as broken as that of unbelievers. And this is important. Although divorce is permitted on specific grounds, and, and here it is, it's unavoidable, it's never commanded. Danny Aiken, one of our seminary presidents, Uh, here and actually in Wake Forest, North Carolina, he says that God never places divorce as the preferred or first option. Malachi 2.16 says it really strongly that God hates divorce. Jesus makes clear that this exception was given only as a concession, and he does so in Matthew 19. Jesus explains why this concession was given, ultimately the hardness of human hearts. Jesus gives a further clarification here to emphasize his larger point here about marriage and divorce. He says there, if you look at glance at verse thirty two, he says that divorce and remarriage without biblical grounds amounts to adultery. Let's let's read it, verse thirty two. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The reason for this, it might not be quite clear as you look at it initially, but it actually is pretty straightforward as you look a little closer. Without biblical grounds, the marriage bond still holds, which means that he or she is still joined to another. John Calvin makes the point that it would be like offering your husband or, or your wife to be intimate with someone else. You don't have that right, and, and, and he or she doesn't have that right. It would, it would be adultery. So, to remarry without legitimate grounds would amount to adultery. And likewise, marrying someone in that state amounts to adultery unless they have biblical grounds. Now, the text does suggest that remarriage is permissible after a divorce on biblical grounds. The idea is that sexual infidelity or immorality, as it's termed here, ultimately compromises the marriage bond, which therefore allows a disunion. In these extreme situations. The scriptures declare to us that marriage is holy. In Ephesians 5, the apostle Paul provides us with a deeper reason why it is so holy and why it is important. The apostle Paul explains that marriage was given as a picture of the love between Christ and the church. So often the church is called his bride for this very reason because of this metaphor in the Bible. So to take marriage lightly has much more significance than, than merely the social consequences, which we see all around us. There's a theological uh, thing that the Scriptures give us, ultimately, that we, we must consider carefully. As I said earlier, so, so many of us have been affected by divorce. I myself has, have in my own parents. Some of us carry deep scars, and as a result of divorce, you know, our, our lives have been shaped and formed by these things. Ultimately, we have to remember that we, we live in a broken world, and it affects every part of our lives. Marriages are not excluded. If marriage represents the bond between Christ and the church, you'd better believe that the adversary hates marriage and is going to do everything he can to undermine it. We have to be prepared for that. As followers of Christ, let us, let us hear the words of our Lord and apply them to our lives, Let's honor marriage both in deed but also in word in all ways that we would honor marriage to the glory of God for our good. As we have a time of invitation, a message like this, there's several different ways that you might respond. I mean, it might be that now you see God's holy standard here and that repentance might be needed. It might be that you carry the scars of divorce and you are just calling out to God for healing for relief, for restoration. Pray, uh, prayer might be needed to, to those who are in a struggling marriage. Prayer that God would heal and restore however you need to respond. Now is the time, if you'd please stand with me as we prepare ourselves for the hymn of invitation. I Any- prayer from one of our deacons, Lee Pegram, if you would come and close us in prayer. Look forward to visiting with many of you afterward. May the Lord bless you with health and grace this week. Look forward to seeing you. Thank you, brother.
1: Thank you for um, today and thank you for uh, the rich blessing of the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, as we've been going through this uh, sermon series. God, we're just thankful for Jesus' words um, to guide us. And God, we... Um, thank you for our church and the direction that we're moving, God. That um, you have really blessed us and, and, and really even brought us closer together through COVID and, and through Pastor Paul coming in. And God, we just thank you for our church. I ask you to forgive us for our sins. We love you. Amen.